Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Golly Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 30, we're discussing Excalibur number 31, No Man is an Island. And boy, I'm never not hoping for lots of Nightcrawler, and I guess this technically qualifies. Excalibur number 31 was originally published in November 1990. And the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, David Ross on pencils, Al Milgram on inks, Brad Van Ketta on colors, Ken Lopez on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Today's super smart guest has been excited to come on the pod since the beginning and requested this issue specifically, as I recall. I think more for the Krakoa tie-in than the amount of Nightcrawler fur on display, but uh, (laughs) we will talk about both. I'll introduce our guest in a moment, but first, your regular travelers. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I talk and write about gender and sexuality in comics and other pop culture. I'm the editor of the award-winning book called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. I review comics for Comics XF and write essays for places like The Middle Spaces and Shelf Dust and lots of academic places as well. I am also, as the pod audience is very aware, Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. There's stuff we can and will criticize in today's issue, I'm sure, but also there's a two-page splash of all but naked Nightcrawler being caressed and bound up in sticky vines. So (laughs) on balance, I'm not mad at it and looking forward to talking about that. Mav, if you'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Oh, you just completely broke me. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent a minute or two looking at that page, I'm not going to yeah. lie. Uh, my, my, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And what I was going to say was, you know, I, I feel bad about introducing <laughs> myself because like this, I, I feel like this should just be a solo Anna podcast today. Like I, I, yeah. I feel like there shouldn't be any guests. There shouldn't be any host. It should just be Anna just talking her thoughts because it's a, it's a, it's a nightcrawler issue. And it's, this is a book where I read this and I go, I hope Anna is enjoying this. Um, I mean, I, I, not that I didn't, but, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but, but like clearly you know, someone in the past made the decision to write and draw a book for you. (laughs) Like whether they did a good, good or bad job, we can discuss, but they clearly were intending for you to read this specifically. And that's, that, that's my feelings on this issue. But beyond that, um, hi, uh, I'm Mav. I, I also write about comics and study them and do cultural studies. And I'm the host of another podcast called Vox Popcast. And I don't know, you know, you guys listen to the week show every week. So hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we're picking up new listeners all the time. So I mean, I feel like well, the they intros are still relevant. Yeah, well, oh, well I, nice I gotta to go back. And... Hello, new people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, based on the numbers, it does seem like when we pick up new people, they do start from the beginning, which we appreciate. That's like a lot of dedication. 
that I probably wouldn't have if I were in someone else's <laughs> place because I'm lazy. But um, yeah, I want to talk about that actually, about like the audience for this book and the different ways that we can read Nightcrawler's lack of clothes on this issue. So we'll be coming back to that. Andrew, if you would like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a um, um, lecturer at St. Charles University and the project lead for the Claremont run. Uh, and having listened to Mav and Anna's introductions, I'm just now realizing that I brought too many notes and should just chill out and listen to Anna enjoy Kurt's body for like an hour. No, I am excited about these notes, Andrew. I am very excited about these notes. I was also thinking like, what would the podcast sound like if it was just me? It would probably be me asking questions of myself because I would get bored and it would get weird. And so that's really not a good idea. I'm very happy that all of you are here. And I'm very happy that our guest is here, who we need to get around to introducing. We are joined on the podcast this week by, as I mentioned, a super smart guest who's also a friend of ours. The pod is very excited to welcome John Dorowski. Welcome, John. Thank you. We'll tell the listeners a little bit about you. So John Dorowski is a PhD candidate in comparative humanities at the University of Louisville. He's published many, many essays on the history of comic book superheroes and is the editor of the recent book, Adapting Superman, Essays on the Transmedia Man of Steel, featuring me writing about Lois and Clark's sex swap fan fiction and Mav writing about the TV show Smallville. So again, another kind of pod friends reunion today. <laughs> so we're so excited to have you on the pod, John. And as I mentioned, you requested this issue. So I'm curious about that and what your thoughts about it will be, but I want to hear a little bit about your Excalibur origin story first. So I know that you are a big fan of the comic book series. Like, are you a fan of it from kind of way back? So I was probably a fan of the idea of Excalibur before I became a fan of the comic book. I got introduced to many superheroes through the trading cards in the early 90s. Mm. And so um nightcrawler in particular was a character i thought looked great it's a great design one of the best costume designs they've never been able to really get away from it uh, because it's, it's so perfect and so i you know reading this card it's like oh i like this nightcrawler character he's on excalibur let me see who else is on excalibur among all these cards and eventually we i did get to a comic book shop but i wasn't reading regularly enough to like go every week and pick up the new titles for several years so i enjoyed the concept of excalibur probably a lot more than i did the title itself for a while and having listened to the podcast and read along with it now it's probably a good thing i missed the claremont era because that would have just confused me as a new, like some of the first comics I read. If that had been them, I would have just been totally lost. But really? something like something like this issue is great because it's self-contained. Uh, mm. It has explains the references to older stuff, so you have a sense of history. But it's just uh, done in one story, and I don't have to worry about all the continuity that's going along. Uh, and that was part of the appeal of Excalibur anyway, because it was X-Men adjacent. It wasn't part of the main X-Men line. Yeah, we talked a little bit about before on the pod about kind of the cult value of the series in terms of it being sort of a place that you can make your own kind of within that larger franchise, right? I love that idea of you getting into it through the trading cards because I've done that in the past with like <laughs> TV shows when you couldn't get easy access to the shows. Like I was a big fan of Deep Space Nine through the Deep Space Nine companion book and Deep Space Nine fan fiction before I ever got to see an episode of Deep Space Nine. So solidarity. <laughs> we get into well, these things in unconventional ways sometimes. We can talk about Deep Space Nine in different show <laughs> oh yes anytime anytime big fan of deep space nine and also part of the appeal of excalibur i think was their base is a lighthouse and that is so much cooler than a mansion <laughs> what do you why do you <laughs> think the lighthouse cooler. yeah what is the what's cool about the lighthouse to you i mean is this going to be the difference between deep space nine and tng in some way um I don't think so, though T DS9 is my favorite of the Star Trek franchises. But the lighthouse is on the coast, and you've got the crashing waves. It's got It has that romanticized air, which mansions can have, but don't always. But lighthouses always have it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it only has that's one true. bathroom. <laughs> that's part well, of its charm. It canonically has a bathroom, one bathroom. Yeah, but when you're just starting out reading this as a 12-year-old, you're not worried about the actual <laughs> layout of how a lighthouse works and how you actually live there with five people. You're just like, you're just like oh, they live in a lighthouse. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. I'm like now going on like a mental tangent with myself about a reading rainbow book called like <laughs> Keep the Lights Burning Anna or something that was like about this girl that has to keep the light burning at a lighthouse in a big storm. And like, I thought that was the coolest book. And I don't think I ever actually read it. I just saw it on Reading Rainbow a million times. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 
getting very distracted. We need to get to this Nightcrawler conversation, so I should refocus here. Let's do that issue summary, and then we'll come back to some first impressions, and we'll give you, John, a first crack at it to talk about some of the interesting things about this issue. And again, get back to that question of why you wanted to come on for this particular one. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We adore each and every one of you. Thank you so, so much. But as usual, we'll get our bearings with that plot summary. Excalibur number 31, No Man is an Island, opens in a plane over the South Sea, where Kurt Wagner, caught in a very unflattering angle, is apparently about to die in a plane crash while on holiday, no less. Like that first panel is like, you know when you're, you have your phone on front face accidentally and then you're looking down on it and then you get that horrible like face because you're looking down at your phone? That's exactly what that image is. Poor Kurt <laughs> but you, having But that. you have the phone sitting on the table in front of your crotch. Because that's, <laughs> that's also part of what's going on here. True. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So luckily, he spies an island and manages to navigate the busted plane through the tropical storm toward it, enough for him to teleport himself to shore. But because his teleportation doesn't alter his momentum, something many writers tend to forget, the landing is a rough one. Before losing consciousness, Kurt beholds a series of giant stone heads resembling the X-Men, including him. Meanwhile, back at the lighthouse, Megan, transformed into a seagull woman, contemplates her actions in Excalibur number 30 when she lost control of her powers and injured Kurt and nearly ate a dog. She's doubting her role in the team, but Brian... <laughs> Ryan arrives to reassure her. Back on the island, Kurt wakes up in a cave where he'd apparently at some point gone to rest and recuperate and get changed. He's stripped down to a flimsy loincloth for the rest of the issue. He sees a woman being taken to a volcano by a group of spear-wielding islanders, apparently acting out some sort of punishment or ritual. Kurt saves the woman, barely. They're actually saved by a newly formed rock ledge. The rock ledge becomes a flying platform that takes them deeper into the volcano, where they confront a big green monster calling himself Vega Superior, the only living descendant of the living island of Kirk who wants revenge on the X-Men who killed his father. Nightcrawler doesn't take Vega Superior's threat especially seriously, even after he's attacked by recreations of the X-Men, a colossus made of stone, a wolverine made of ice, and a cyclops that shoots lava. But as Kurt easily defeats the X-Men copies, his female companion turns against him, aligning herself with Vega Superior. Kurt teleports back to the island's surface to escape the knife she throws at him. On the surface, Kurt fights versions of Angel and himself before a final showdown with Vega Superior. Kurt dives into the sea to escape, Vega Superior follows, and drowns. Its power's gone now that it's no longer connected to the island. Later, Kurt welcomes the rest of Excalibur to Wagner's Isle, where he's now being feted as a god. As they sit down to a meal, Kurt begins to retell his story, avoiding the touchy subject of the fact he wrecked Brian's plane, something he'll do many more times in future issues. Okay, so let's start with those first impressions, and guest privilege, we'll send it over to you, John. So when you requested this issue, why did you request it? Was it because you remembered it, or was there something in particular about this issue that you wanted to talk about? About. Largely because I remembered it as one of the first comic books I ever read, not just Excalibur <gasps> comic books. Oh my god! Yes, um, I recall. As I recall it, uh, there was a reference to this issue in Wizard magazine, and I thought <laughs> it sounded interesting. And so I looked up the comic, uh, one of the comic book backorder companies that printed a catalog in the comic books themselves at the time. Mile High Comics? Uh, no, I think this was the East Coast Comics. <laughs> East Coast Comics also. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and ordered the issue in through that. Oh, oh my god, I love that. How old would you have been? Oh, 12, 13, 14. Really just barely getting into comic books, having been introduced to a lot of stuff from the trading cards and the recent cartoons, Batman the Animated Series, the X-Men series, which I was so frustrated they never did a Nightcrawler episode of. Well, yeah, they did, but he's like a monk yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah there was so, something where, where I was like, I was just so disappointed that we never got a good Nightcrawler in that series. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's true. What did you make of the issue when it arrived? Did it live up to your wildest dreams? Yeah, uh, because it was this amazing adventure story where you have so much going on. It's, you know, it's on a tropical island. You have the natives and then there's this big threat underneath of Vega Superior. I just remember, <laughs> I remember him as the son of Krakoa. Uh, I know yeah. Krakoa. I know Krakoa is very important to the current era of X-Men, but few people seem to remember the son of Krakoa. <laughs> <laughs> Needs to make a comeback. Hickman does his research. You don't know that that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you say Hickman does his research. I re went back and reread Giant Size X-Men in preparation for this to get the original Krakoa, and I don't think oh, they read that in preparation because the Krakoa they have now has no relation to the what yeah. they had then. Yeah, he he, thro he throws out what he doesn't like, but he clearly I think he's clearly read it, whether he agrees... He, yeah, he, he dumps a I lot. Agree. Yeah, 
but he definitely like i i feel like he probably knows about vega i feel like he probably <laughs> yeah. knows we'll, we'll see if anyone else remembers about <laughs> the son of krakoa and i also like that this calling him the son of krakoa because it echoes the son of kong the overlook <laughs> movie in that <laughs> franchise oh yeah <laughs> Um, like that. What was, did you have sort of a reaction to rereading it kind of again after all these years like had you not revisited this issue in a while yeah well i hadn't revisited it for a while because i remembered it so well because it, you know it was such an impressionable effect on my youth but rereading it i had both that nostalgia of remembering what it felt like to read it the first time back in the heyday and also looking at it critically now and saying okay here are all the tropes that are going on i see this now as the 1920s adventure stories with all the problematic portrayals it is the white or in this case blue savior narrative um <laughs> and then you know the ignorant tribe uh who worships a false god that has to be taken down and so i could see all the problematic aspects that come from these adventure traditions that i would have had no clue about uh when i first read it for sure i was like hoping someone would bring up some of those tropes because it's definitely something that we can talk about a little bit although you've actually summed up all of the problems pretty succinctly right there but um well, I, I, didn't, Andrew, I didn't bring up the gender issues yet no the gender issues we are going to talk about too anytime i talk about kurt i want to talk about gender in every way possible so we're definitely going to talk about that mav or andrew did you guys have any first impressions rereading this issue after all these years he's naked a lot (laughs) i i I didn't really i mean i i didn't remember it that well this is not one of my favorite issues i don't have a problem with it i when reading excalibur during this era i was the first time i was very upset that this is just so much of this um this issue last issue the issue before that were were very much a each one's written by a different person this is yeah. none of this is in the in the actual plot line we had a story going on like if the cross time caper ended and then it's just like yeah we'll we'll get to it eventually and then we didn't we didn't for like a long time and even coming up i think girl school from heck starts next like it it, it all seemed very weirdly just like spinning the wheels and i was irritated at the time i did not like this then reading this now i'm fine i think it's a neat kurt story that i enjoyed this this read through and be, with with fresh eyes yeah i mean someone pointed out in a comment on our website that when excalibur started going twice monthly that's when we had this long series of fill-ins so that was like really really painful at the time mm-hmm. <laughs> and like i think when i was reading it the first time too that's probably part of my reaction because i mean you said that this comic is like for me i did not love this comic the first time i read it and then when i'm rereading it now i'm like this is a perfectly fine and enjoyable kurt yeah. comic like i don't know why best? yeah like it's not my absolute favorite but i mean it's like fine and i enjoyed parts of it and i don't know why i had sort of a less strong reaction the first time and then i'm like i think it was because of that continuity issue because i'm reading the ongoing story and i'm anxious to see what happens next i'm anxious to see whether kitty's going to rejoin the team and we just had so many fill-ins in a row that i think that probably had something to do with me not having the strongest reaction the first time but anyway andrew first impression um i'm actually looking it up as we speak my curiosity is when classic x-men volume 123 comes out because they got to be real too. close. Yeah. Uh, so it's saying here that it came out in July of 1988. So it does predate this narrowly. Um, it's weird. Like it's, it's a go-to to that story that already exists and um, does a lot of the same things. It does. Um, so it kind of feels like Scott Lobdell coming onto Excalibur, which I think is an important thing for us to kind of acknowledge because this is someone mm-hmm. who's going to be a continuous writer on Excalibur later on and, and sort of making a little bit of a, um, a name there. He's, he's gone on to have a very successful career in comics. It feels like he's just kind of looking at Claremont's iteration of Nightcrawler and trying to do his own version of it. And I think he does a solid job. You know what I mean? Like, I think he shows that he has a decent handle on who Kurt is as a character. It's not Lobdell's best work. And I do think Lobdell does become a good writer a little bit later on. Um, but it does, again, sort of signal that there is a writer out there who's going to be able to create continuity with Claremont in the aftermath of the end of that run. Yeah, so just for our listeners who's not aware, the classic X-Men story you're talking about is the one that's set... It's on their way home from Japan, right? And then Kurt gets lost over the side of the boat? Yeah, they're way to Japan um, from the like, way the to Savage Japan, Land. That's right. And right, it's, it's and then... incredibly similar to this story. Like, it, it's again, mm-hmm. he has to rescue a woman from ritual sacrifice by really racist portrayals of islanders 
Yeah. What edition uh, number is it? I'm just 23, the, I believe. 20, Classic yeah. X-Men. I have it fresh in my mind because Andrew sent it to me recently to cheer me up and I hadn't read it in a really long time and I was just like, yeah, there's some like problems in this comic and yet I'm also so happy to read a fun Nightcrawler adventure story that I'm willing to forgive a little bit right at this moment. But um, we will talk about some of the problems as well. Because I mean, particularly with the classic X-Men story, in addition to all the colonialism and racism stuff, there's a thing at the end where in the last panel the woman is like how will i ever repay you and then kurt has like a shit-eating smile on his face and is like oh "Oh, (laughs) i'm sure you'll think of something and it's like oh why this is like not consensual flirting that sounds like she has to pay you with sex and please don't write it like that oh i mean i guess we're guess we're reviewing classic x-men now but but yeah uh, (laughs) but but i mean we could i I mean i (laughs) I've I've never read it because it didn't. And again, it's a male fantasy. I mean, it's the, not just a male gazy. This issue, and it's a backup issue, is specifically Kurt's male fantasy. That's what's going on. But yeah. um, it's Robert so, Howard. It's 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 right. called the Conqueror. It's Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, and it and I don't read it as a him giving her an ultimatum. I read it as her asking. Like it it it, it seemed consensual to me. And the not that she's a terrible deep character i don't even remember the girl's name without reading it but i'm looking Ico. at it now Iko, thank you it's been forever like her her job is victim she is princess to be to be rescued she is you know we talked about kurt wagner warlord where which breaks all those tropes this is not breaking those tropes you know she is there to be the oh you have saved me let me offer myself to you in that story which i mean sure it's gross i don't think he's manipulative in that sense i think it's a tough one just because of the tropes involved and like the expectation that i mean she doesn't have agency because she's a character written by men in a male fantasy space therefore she is being used as a prize so like in that sense i find it gross like i would have liked it to be a little bit more if her character is established more and it's very clear that they're kind of like playing with each other within the structure of those tropes there's like a different way of doing that rather than just doing the trope if you know what i mean the better way of doing this is x-men number 204 where you know where it's a character that has things to do and has thoughts and i mean like Iko was a woman who was there to be rescued and then have sex with. And I, again, I, I get why it's gross, but I'm saying it very much is a, that story is Claremont wanting to put Kurt in the pulp fantasy book. It could, it could have been written in any pulp magazine from 1928 through 1988, <laughs> like literally over a 60 year, <laughs> 60 year period. It could have appeared in any issue of amazing fantasy. Like that's just what yeah. those were. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things, and it's not always played up as much as it could be, but it's always implicit, is just the fact that Nightcrawler was always going to be out of place in that role because he's Nightcrawler. I mean, he mm-hmm. isn't like the, like, whatever, like, he's not the attractive, like, like yeah, yeah, like, he's not that guy, right? He's just not. So he's always going to be out of place in that role. And one of the interesting things about the classic X-Men story is we have him sort of engaging directly with performance. Like, he finds the abandoned clothes and puts them on and looks at himself in the mirror and has to cut the boots to fit his feet. So you get some of that performance of aspect here we don't have as much of that in this comic though i do find it really interesting that he like well he does a bit of like the rogue and the savage land thing where he like strips down his costume to a sexy costume which but like, it's I guess especially is... weird because it's a loincloth right yeah so either he was wearing a loincloth or he made a loincloth in that cave in order to perform this role at first i was gonna gripe on the fact that it has like a tail hole in it and then i was like okay well maybe that's not weird because it's part of his uniform but that still implies he cut his uniform into the shape of a loincloth why wouldn't you just make underwear well and no because it's not part of his uniform i mean like that's not how his uniform's cut he literally you know he made that because you know because because he wants to be again it's because the point of this issue, and I, I want to contrast this with the with the classic X Men story. This issue is a different take on that, and then the you know this isn't just Nightcrawler dumped into the pulp story. This is Nightcrawler dumped into the other pulp story where you think that you're rescuing the damsel in distress. Yeah, but yeah. Surprise, she's evil. <laughs> yeah. And that is also could have appeared in any pulp magazine between yeah, 1928 and 2000. That's a big one too. <laughs> like it's literally. I mean, I've I've, I've written 
you know, I, I do work with pulps outside of comics. I've written about these. Like the story occurs over and over again. Women are damsels or women are secretly, you know, savage witch priestesses. That's the trope. So I think this is trying for the other trope. And so he cut his uniform so as to match that, I guess. I, I, I mean, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, it's not acknowledged. But if the storyline had had a beat where Kurt goes, oh, if I'm going to be trapped on this island, I better look the part and cut in, and cut his outfit into a, into. I would totally buy that because it's exactly like, you know, Kurt Wagner Warlord, where he's like, no, no, no. I've yeah. got to put on this cra- this cape and Kimry's like no no we can you don't have to put the- why are we in no, no. and like and we're like, in a hurry like <laughs> no no I, let me have this you know so if he yeah. had that moment I I would have bought it he's like no I'm going to be I'm going to be an adventurer I I need to wear my loincloth and like in both the classic X Men story and the Warlord issue he's just got the smile while he's getting dressed right. too and he's so freaking pleased with himself so I assume that happened here I assume yeah. in the cave he's like I'm gonna be trapped in a cave. I guess it's loincloth time, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Sigh. (laughs) Oh, darn. Let's let's bring John back into the conversation because I want to talk like a little bit more specifically about sort of Nightcrawler as a protagonist and what you kind of make of him in some of these roles sort of performing in this kind of space. And I know you've been a frequent guest on your brother Joseph's uh, protagonist podcast and you should be used to answering these questions about protagonists. But um, you mentioned Nightcrawler as being a character that you have affection for. You obviously have affection for this protagonist issue. So what do you think John is going on with Nightcrawler wanting to participate in this kind of fantasy space? What does he get out of these kind of adventure story contexts? Part of it is, uh, well, the nature of his character that, that was established early on is he is the swashbuckling, fun-loving hero. And that was done to serve as a contrast to his appearance, which I know was meant to be this grotesque monstrous thing. I never really got that. I thought, yeah. he, lo- he looks great. <laughs> Uh, um, and so this has been baked into his character for decades at this point where you have that strong contrast of appearance and personality where he can come across as this romantic leading figure uh, especially when it's only him if there are others around it's a little harder for him to stand out that way So I think that was part of why Lobdell said, I want to do a solo Nightcrawler issue and play with all these tropes, sometimes imitating, sometimes subverting them, but not very much. For me, I think one of the things that's most interesting about Kurt's participation in these fantasies is the extent to which he does so ironically versus sort of yes. more sincerely, right? Because like a lot of these genres that Kurt loves, they're antithetical to a lot of what Kurt stands for. They're misogynistic, they're racist, they have all kinds of implicit problems. So I like it when Kurt is a little bit more playful with the genre like he enjoys the genre but he's going to do it Kurt's way so when you say like in classic X-Men story that, that it's a little creepy at the end when he does kind of sincerely say something really kind of gross to Ico, um, to me that's where the line does get crossed I like him as someone who indulges in the fantasy, but is also capable of contemporizing it in order to align it with his values, which are, I mean, I think all of us would agree, great values for a human being to have. Well, and I mean, that makes sense in terms of him being an outsider in these spaces, too, because I would like to think that he would have like an inherent self-reflexivity to enacting these roles through the acknowledgement that he can never fit this role properly. And even, Mm -hmm. I don't know why we keep talking about the classic X-Men story instead of this comic, but it's just like something from that comic, like... Like, you know, him having to cut the Explorer boots to fit his feet, something like that, right? Like, it's just a really good representation of how he can't fit the role. He can wear the clothes, but he's got to cut a hole for his tail and he's got to cut the boots because he can't wear boots, right? And like little touches like that advertise his difference from that traditional role that he can't properly fit into. But I agree with you, Andrew, that like when he's fitting in the role too perfectly, that's when I sometimes have like an issue with it because I don't think that's doing the interesting thing that you could do with this character in that space yeah it needs a self-reflexivity <laughs> yeah yeah exactly I always wish that we had more of Kurt's backstory and because we know he's got this affection for old movies and stuff but we don't know the genesis of that affection there has never been a comic showing him as a kid looking up at the big movie screen and like having the affection for Errol Flynn you would think that that's Mm -hmm. a comic that exists and we have never had it it blows my mind because it's just taken as a given and it's just not a story that we've ever had told and I would Hmm. love to have that story told so badly I really like the idea that for Kurt Errol Flynn is a fantasy specific of acceptance 
Mm. Um, that, that that's what he wants really is, is to be, you know, um, beloved. Uh, and I think he sees all the other stuff as um, maybe ancillary or potentially just, you know, the instrumental value that leads to the intrinsic value. Um, so I, I think there's ways that you can make it very basic. It's just, he just wants to be accepted. But as you said, uh, as John said earlier, like a lot of Kurt's character is about already having that acceptance. So maybe he's just sort of fleshing out the fantasy when he does the pirate thing with the cutlass and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to say because we haven't had kind of that backstory explanation in a comic before it's like always going to be something that we're kind of bringing to the story because we just haven't had that explanation and it's very mm -hmm. strange too like the way the meaning of Errol Flynn has changed so much between like 1980 yeah. and now right I mean he's a much more problematic figure than he was generally accepted as being in decades past and yet he's also a queerer figure than he was acknowledged as being in decades past so you have a lot of interesting things going on with the star text of Errol Flynn that we could talk about in relation to Nightcrawler if we were going to do interesting things with his stories that sort of explored that aspect of them and I can't honestly say that any story from the past 20 years has done something interesting with that but <laughs> it's certainly something that I would love to see explored you know like I if totally we're gonna wrote be a book chapter about that <gasps> Andrew, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. That sounds awesome. It's not very good though, sorry. No, no, no. I am like so looking forward to it. I mean, I've had conversations with you about it, but I haven't read the actual book yet and I'm going to read it on the first day that it becomes available to me. That'll double but my I sales. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I don't know, Mav, do you have any thoughts about sort of the because we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. So, I mean, we don't necessarily have to keep talking about it because I do want to talk about some of the objectification and exploitation stuff too. But if you do have thoughts about sort of Kurt's performances, go ahead. We've gone over it. I It's weird because I, I, I do see it both ways. Being the Kurt apologist is Anna's job, right? And, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that negatively. I mean, I, I one of the things I like about our show is that we approach it from different points of view. To me, I'm I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound creepy because I don't mean it to be creepy. I I am willing to accept Kurt's buying into a masculine fantasy unironically because I think that in the ways in which Kurt is problematic, which he is sometimes, um, yeah. I think it I think it speaks to the problematic views that Kurt has uh, for, you know, he, he flirts with women in ways that he, you know, the thing with the rape issue with the Nazis where he realized, oh, maybe I've been doing these wrong things. I like that Kurt has ways of looking at masculinity, toxic masculinity, even in a way that says it's not just because you don't have to look like the, like the jock on the football team. You don't have to be Brian in order to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm okay with him being wrong and i'm okay with him having masculine power fantasies that you know would be problematic if he'd given him himself chance to reflect and this is a story where he's not had that chance to reflect for most of it um yeah until until he suddenly realizes oh turns out she's evil and i just didn't see it because kurt doesn't see women as evil when they're half naked it's it's the problem of warlord <laughs> right like he like oh my god cute woman i've got to save her because that's what kurt does that's his that's his gut and it turns out she's mm -hmm. the you know she's the bad guy for me the undercutness of it is and so we stuck her in a cage because she's not worshiping me which is how the book ends like that's yeah that's where the flaw comes out and we're, we're not there yet but like i'm okay with him not being 100 percent great in as much as a book is willing to be critical and i don't know that this one is but i don't know that it's explicitly forgiving it either which is a problem mm. it's just not taking a stance i think we can do that as scholars we can take the stance for it because i don't think the book forgives his behavior i think it just doesn't it doesn't deal with it yeah and i mean we get these sort of token acknowledgements you know like at the beginning we have kurt's sort of thought bubble being like oh they're sacrificing sacrificing this woman oh well for all i know she's a horrible criminal and she did some crime right and then at the mm -hmm. end we get the token acknowledgement of no i'm not saying it's like enough yeah. but it's just that <laughs> yeah. it's like it's it's what a text from a certain era will do it'll acknowledge the trope so that we don't have to deal with it right which obviously yeah. isn't enough and then at the end we get him being like oh no putting her in the cage was not my idea believe me so it's acknowledged so it knows that it's wrong but it doesn't fix it right no. right he calls himself a god <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like she offended the local god God, who's me you know yeah. <laughs> should we mention the context of scott lobdell we can. He, he has accusations against him in both his yeah. professional like like sort of interactions with people and in his writing of being very misogynistic maybe not the best writer to tackle a story it's gonna, well it's gonna come gender up issues require nuance it's gonna come up later because he's going to become the regular writer eventually mm -hmm. so but yeah, yeah. and then we get I, warren I, ellis 
yeah i, I, I assume we'll deal with it more directly when when there's time you know this is yeah yeah for, yeah for like our listeners we will deal with that like more like when we get lobdell returning because i think it's an interesting not interesting i think it's an important thing to important. talk about and talk about the relationship between sort of real life and stories and you know how we're going to parse those kind of things so we will put a pin in that and return to it i promise and i appreciate you bringing it up i mean i'll just say a couple of things mav and then i kind of want to talk about why nightcrawler's naked so much in this book but um <laughs> but yeah you're absolutely right mav i i get to Defensive sometimes about people thinking like I want Nightcrawler to be perfect or something like right. admittedly I'm in love with him and like kind of have that a little bit because of course you want a character to be worthy sure. of your love of them right what I really want though is just the portrayal of him to kind of make sense with the character so I mean if he is going to be like a creepy flirter or do that kind of thing it should come from a place that kind of makes sense with his character and so like for me something like the Excalibur number four scene you know where he's trying to like get acceptance from Megan and manipulating and like doing that because he is manipulative in that scene mm-hmm. I like it because it makes sense with his character and he's totally being problematic in that scene. And yet I think it's in a way that is complicated. And in that sense, like I'm okay with it. This comic is not as complicated. And in that sense, I'm less okay with it. Basically, I agree with you that Kurt can be a super problematic character. I mean, it's funny in terms of where things have gone with the character of late, which I don't want to talk about, but it's just that I would have thought that the toxic aspect of Kurt was like excessive flirting, (laughs) which like is something I've actually been very sensitive about and have written about before and, and it's here like i don't think this particular issue again i said at the beginning i i think i like this fine i don't think it's trying to pretend that there's no problem i i really yeah. really don't I, I think it's not dealing with things the way that i would but i didn't write this issue and i don't yeah. have to and frankly given what you just said or what andrew just said about labelle it could be worse it could be yeah it could worse. be it could be significantly <laughs> worse yeah like so. starfire well, let- worse yeah yeah well let's shift to talking about because i want to talk about these visuals and i keep talking about naked night and i actually do want to talk about this like as an interesting subject because i think it is really interesting and admittedly it might interest me a little bit more than other people but i think it's very interesting the way certain superheroes and particularly i want to focus on male superheroes because female superheroes it's very different there's different contexts bound up in that but certain male superheroes get naked more often than other male superheroes is it just my nightcrawler centric gaze that he gets naked more often than other male superheroes or is that an actual thing i put it to the panel no you're right (laughs) (laughs) i think you're right but i have caveats i think okay i think you're i think yes he does in that it is far less likely i mean you sort of brush it off but it is far less likely in general for male superheroes to be naked or half naked than female superheroes yes modula the fact that being in spandex means you're naked all the time anyway but like just the actual depiction of no this character is without clothing happens far more often with female characters than male characters so yes i think that it happens more often with with kurt than it does with spider-man um or or like i'm just just pick someone's pick someone at random but i don't know and now i'm kind of curious to like go and sort of do a claremont style claremont run style let's go through and count the panels i don't know that it happens more often with kurt than it does with ryan or um characters in other sex focused books that we might talk about on this show maybe i'll put the question to john in this way because i'm sort of interested in the gaze in this book because i mean mav talked about it being a male fantasy earlier and i think that that's true and yet you also talked about it being like this is a comic for you anna so i'm interested in that kind of whether those two things can meet in the middle or not so john if i were to ask you is nightcrawler objectified in this comic what do you think you would say well my initial impulse would be no but that would also be coming from my nostalgia so thinking about it critically well, no, I think both responses are interesting because, I mean, I think the multiple gaze mm-hmm. of that, like the way it's not perceived as objectification, depending on who you are and where you are, I think that that's part of what makes it interesting. So the fact that you didn't perceive it that way, I think is interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's objectifying him in the entirety of the comic. There are certainly panels that objectify him. But as Matt pointed out, wearing spandex, you're not that far off from being naked anyway. And so uh, especially with Nightcrawler, where uh, half of his costume looks like his blue fur anyway, or it can be very easily mistaken for it. You have that weird boundary of, well, where does the costume end and the body begin? 
I was going to say, I think that might lead to sort of the broader question of like um, conceptual nudity versus visual nudity. The idea here with Kurt in terms of how it's subjected to the gaze is like if I were to send Anna an email and she'd never read this comic and, and said, hey, in Excalibur 31, Kurt runs around in a loincloth all the time. That's sexy as a concept, right? Yeah. Versus a, a character, you know, saying, you know, um, in this particular issue, Kurt fights a sentinel and I don't mention that he gets his clothes all blasted off or something like that. So there's different ways that you're creating that erotic appeal and it's not explicitly visual, right? That there's a concept here. And I think it's really important in light of what we've already talked about that, that Kurt is delighted to be in his loincloth. He put himself yeah. in his loincloth. And that makes it harder to see him as objectified from the conceptual perspective. Um, but it, it, as, as John mentioned, there are certain panels that do seem to put um, a, a gaze on him that we might call an objectifying gaze. Well, I want to get into the specifics of like what is an objectifying gaze versus what is a different type of gaze. And sort of the critical kind of discourse that I was thinking about was something like when we talk about in disability studies, the difference between the gaze and the stare, you know, the yeah. ways that we look at a body with different types of fascination and sort of a gaze is an erotic gaze because Kurt is a monstrous character in that sense resonates, can resonate with disability. He can resonate with racial difference as well, although I don't think that that's a context that's applied to this character that much. I think it's like I yeah. find I find the disability so context a little bit yeah i find the disability context like a little bit more convincing um in terms of him having a non-normative body but i mean just 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 like a couple things about gaze versus stare just like to situate us so like the stare is sort of a possessive gaze that doesn't acknowledge the humanity of the subject the gaze is also like objectifying but the stare is it's not that it's even more so but it's different because you're not acknowledging sort of the erotic component and it can be even more dehumanizing right. so the thing that i worry about or not worry about but think about was sort of a monstrous character and a lot of monstrous characters do appear naked more often than non-monstrous characters is that his nakedness isn't being treated as nakedness because there's an animalisticness to him and therefore it's not considered erotic and therefore some of the eroticization is by accident i think that's often the case with him i think it's i think a better example of to sort of illustrate the point that you're making for people who have not heard these terms if i use a character like wolf's bane from new mutants um oh. somebody people would know when when rain transforms into a wolf girl she is often drawn naked and very infrequently and later on but in the early new minute comics she was naked but she was never thought of as naked she's a wolf girl she's not human so it doesn't matter so it, like her humanity is so eliminated from that point that like the sexualization is almost irrelevant and it shouldn't be but i don't think kurt has that issue for me and I, i'd be hesitant to say that it's not racial difference uh, i think it i think it is and it isn't I, I i understand the point you're making about the the metaphor for disability studies and i agree i do think it comes across particularly with issues of black male eroticism it becomes, you know, like the the savage Negro, the savage, the black body as an erotic object is something that comes across a lot. And I think Kurt can embody that in ways that are both problematic and interesting. <laughs> and I think in the context of this particular issue, that's on display. Kurt, I agree with you. Kurt wants to be, um, actually, Andrew said it, like Kurt is like, hey, I'm in my loincloth. He is displaying himself. So there's a power there but then the question of how we deal with gazes and how we deal with eroticization and as john said is he objectified we have to question what objectified means and, and you know i sort of reject the binary right is a stripper yeah. objectified is a is a burlesque dancer objectified is a cosplayer who shows up dressed in an emma frost costume is she objectified she chose that costume right and i think kurt is choosing this but then kurt's a fictional character kurt's not a real person so it's a it's a really complex issue that i don't think has an answer an affirmative answer either way i think it is both he is displaying himself as a conscious choice of agency but i don't think that means not objectified either i think it's de very dependent on the viewer yeah there's an interesting question there because objectification requires an audience and yeah in the opening, when Kurt shows up in the loincloth, he didn't know natives were there. So was he doing it for an audience? But then on a meta level, was the writer the doing audience. that for the reading audience? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm going to say yes. Character that's <laughs> aware of that, right? Kurt is not, I mean, even if he's not consciously aware of that, he's often used that way. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a few things, right? It's often thought that male bodies are not as objectifiable, even just with the presence of muscles, which advertise activity and agency in the ways that the curves of female bodies don't traditionally. And again, I'm not saying these things have to be true. These are just sort of, that's the yeah, trope, it's right? A, it's a theory that mm-hmm. it's complicated. I mean, I actually- It's complicated, yeah. reject that one, but it's, it's, a, it's a theory that certainly has some merit to it. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, Scott yeah. Bucatman's theory of armored bodies yes. is relevant here, but it's also especially relevant because Bucatman says that X-Men bodies are the exception because the mutant body renders them vulnerable. I'm not sure Kurt's feeling vulnerability in this issue, though. Well, let's talk about the two-page spread with the vines, because I think it's actually- it's an image I enjoy, but I also think it's like one of the most interesting scenes in this comic because there are a lot of different ways we can read this one. So this is like midway through the issue, page 14 and 15. It's not a full page splash, but it's like spread across two pages and it's most of the two pages. So where he's caught up in the vines and he's kind of pulling them off of himself and the ways that his body is displayed here is interesting. He's got a very attractive body in this scene despite or in conversation with his monstrousness. This is a very idealized male body and yet we definitely have sort of the evidence of his difference you know his very different feet are clearly on display and he's in this moment of combined power and vulnerability you know like he's making fun of the threat implying he's not truly threatened by the threat and yet he's certainly being pictured sort of bound and constrained and choked and i don't know what do you guys make of this image is this like an objectifying image is this a problematic image what's your reading of an image like this i think it details exactly what you're saying you know yes he is in a situation of peril even if he's dismissing it in his word balloon he is saying are you serious you know but if we had done this with any female character in any similar outfit we would not question this so the example i would use i think andrew you mentioned it briefly is when rogues in the savage land and and her costume becomes tattered that is often used as a as an example of objectifying male gaze it's pointed to in a bajillion academic essays about comic books is is that imagery. Even though realistically, she is in exactly the same clothing, outfit choices that Tom Hanks is in in the movie Castaway and that Nightcrawler is in here. So if we would call her objectified in any of those imageries, and I don't think there's a point where she's actually attacked by vines. I think she's a woman trying to survive in the wilderness by herself. But we, we would certainly look at any female character this way. So I think we need to consider the possibility the male character is. That said, he is drawn to look powerful here in a way that um, I think that she's given some power in her example. But I think that typically when we put a woman in a bondage scenario, in comics we don't necessarily want her to have we 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 draw her passively in a way that kurt's not drawn passively here so i think it's complicated and i think the answer is yes to both well okay sorry can i say one thing quick about the bondage thing because you know i've mentioned before about sort of looking at images of female and male superheroes from the 1970s and that was sort of a metric that i looked at you know is the bondage are they actively resisting it or do they seem frightened by the bondage and a common Mm -hmm. common common difference is that if there is a male superhero on the cover of a comic and he's sort of in bondage whether it's tentacles or ropes or vines or whatever it is he's going to be actively resisting and fighting back much as kurt is here whereas usually when it's a female character character they're going to be either yeah (laughs) orgasming or like passively not resisting or like frightened like visibly threatened and frightened so there is a common difference between those types of images so that's just a little thing to point out anyway andrew go ahead i was just going to kind of um focus in on that monstrosity element a little bit that you talked about anna yeah My, my question is sort of like um throwing in time as a variable here like I, I love the idea that his monstrosity is surfaced but do you think by this point in time that monstrosity is an established element of kurt's sexual appeal like we're a couple issues away from the is that tail pretend prehensile line and at this point in time if we read Kerr as having been established as a sex symbol and, and maybe Alan Davis doing a whole lot of work in that regard. Um, then I think having his feet splayed and, and showcasing his kind of, you know, demonic um, um, physicality, we could read that as maybe not actually surfacing monstrosity, but, but surfacing uh, again, an, an element that has been recoded uh, as part of what makes Kurt erotic as a visual spectacle. Is that fair? Am I making the slightest sense? 
No, that makes total sense to me. But I think one of the things that particularly interests me about this kind of image of Kurt is the way two different people can look at it and one person will be like, that's super hot. And the other person will just be like, huh, turn page. Like, it's just, <laughs> it really, it's not like there's this consensus the way there is about like, oh, like sexy rogue in the Savage Land thing, right? Like, I mean, that's bound up in such a tradition of representation that we understand that as an eroticized image. But the yeah. thing that I find interesting about images of Nightcrawler is that some people are like sexually obsessed with this character you know raising my hand but there are other people who are just like i mean i remember you doing the claremont run thread andrew where you talked about the cosmo burt reynolds spread and there were definitely some comments in that twitter thread that were less like i don't get it like i mean if it had been another character displayed like this i would get it but i don't get it for this character because there are just some people that just like straight up do not see it so like i think that there's like a distancing element to the monstrous monstrous sort of elements of his body and an appeal it's like a, a radical bothness <laughs> which i yeah. find really really interesting with this character is there a third option i mean are there people who would look at it and say oh wow well that's too objectifying why is he in bondage and like see i don't i don't see which is what you would end up with with a female character you'd, if it were rogue you'd end up with people saying do we have to tie her up again you know yeah and and i don't think like i mean nightcrawler gets tied up a lot uh andrew claremont run just did a, a whole you know a graph of how often characters oh, yeah. are, de are, are depowered or captured or you know he's up there you know yeah, yeah for <laughs> you sure know? Yeah, so like it's not like it's rare for this to happen to him, but I but I never hear people say, oh, "Why is Nightcrawler always in bondage? Why is he always captured? Why is he always depowered?" You know, you say it about Rachel. Yeah, but I mean, I think it just has to do with that history of tropes, right? Because I mean, he's one of the few male characters that this does happen to, and yes. I would actually complain about it to the extent that I think that. Well, I mean, one of the things we haven't used is like the word feminized and whether he's like feminized through mm. this portrayal or not. And I do think that there are times that Kurt is feminized as a character. And I think that there are ways that he's feminized in productive ways. And I do think actually there's ways that he's feminized that kind of make me a little bit uncomfortable in terms of the character kind of being the go-to character to have killed or abused or hurt to provoke emotional responses in other characters, which is a role that female characters are often put into. So like, yeah. that's where I would kind of draw like a moment of kind of criticism criticism because that's a role that Kurt is often often put in like I remember on like old Nightcrawler fan forums we always used to be like well if it's an AU Nightcrawler's gonna get killed first because we need people to cry <laughs> and that's not really true he actually doesn't get killed that much in AUs but it's just it's a thing that like stands out to you if you're kind of like looking for those types of things but I mean I think you're absolutely right Mav that there is a double standard going on here my only defense of it would be just that because male characters kind of come into the space with more of an assumption of power and more protection from the idea of being objectified because we don't expect them to be objectified and many people would read this comic and not perceive the character as objectified whereas Absolutely. that wouldn't be the case for the image of rogue so it's like if those two things just existed independently of all of this context i think that they would be very similar but they don't so they're not right and and, and i i agree <laughs> but i think that by and i don't see and I, i'm not saying you have to look at this and thus hate it and say this is objectified it's not the same as like doing it to a female character it's not he's a male character he is yeah. and and that matters but i think by not considering it and thinking yeah. it through i think you are just as guilty of heteronormative uh, male-centric yeah. view as anybody who ignores it altogether yeah and i mean you know like again if you were to read this character as a racialized character that adds like a whole whack yeah. of complicated meanings to a scene like this and that becomes i mean i have <laughs> well it comes up a lot in john in, in your brother's book right <laughs> like the, the idea of using the x-men as a racial allegory is wow. always complicated in that the vast majority of them well until relatively recently the vast majority of them are white even kurt who is depicted as blue is actually as far as we know a white guy who is deformed to be blue. So the use of racial tropes becomes weird and is it's a lot to unpack with X-Men comics just in general. Yeah. Um that you know as a scholar of race who is black <laughs> like like I we don't have enough show today <laughs> to deal with to deal with it. Um but <laughs> but I do think that in a in a situation where you are dealing with the idea of um of him running around in a loincloth you know is he embodying the white savior which is what john called him at the beginning is he embodying the white savior who jumps into 
the land of natives? Is he Tarzan? Or is he the noble savage? Is he Tonto? And I don't know. Well, the na- the nudity is like, well, near nudity is like really interesting in that context, right? Because mm-hmm. I, well, I've actually written about bondage themes in Black Panther comics before. And it's just like one of the notable differences between, you know, some of the white savior imagery versus like some of the imagery in a Black Panther comic will just be the fact that when it's the white character who's stripping down to a loincloth, it makes a spectacle of their white skin and sort of yes. the contrast of that white skin whether it's mm-hmm. them being bound up in a snake or a crocodile or like generic natives, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this character who's blue, who resonates with racial difference in that way. And yet I never know what to do about that with Nightcrawler because there are so many readings that you can apply to Martian Manhunter about him resonating with racial difference. I don't think that that has been done with the character of Nightcrawler for the pretty basic reason that they're like, he's German, so he's white, which, which makes no sense. Which isn't true, but like it is yeah. the- it's the default racial, racially normative assumption, yes. Which, you know, is funny because I'm talking about Martian Manhunter resonating with blackness and he's not even human. Anyway, it's an interesting context that we could apply to this scene depending on our reading of it. But yeah, I don't know where else I want to go with that other than to just be like, that's another dynamic and another gaze we could bring to this. John, I feel like we haven't had your voice enough on this episode. <laughs> so is there anything that you particularly want to talk about in this issue that we should do before we before we get to the end of it? Because we haven't talked about like Son of Krakoa at all, if that's like <laughs> well, an interesting yeah, thing, aspect of it that you'd like to talk about. I, I could bring up a couple of things just to wrap some wrapping up thoughts, if you'd like. Go for it. Um, so a few things outside of this fully academic context that we could consider. Um, one thing I've been, one, well, it's just one thing I've been trying to pay more attention to when I read it is things like coloring, which might not be appreciated enough. And I thought the colorist on this did get a short end of the stick because you have Nightcrawler who's blue in a jungle setting. It's full of green. Yeah. And you're not supposed to put those colors next to each other. And so the colorist was doing all they can to try and have Kurt stand up. And so you get some panels with these bright pinks to try and give some contrast. But there are other panels where it's against the sea. And you could obviously see the color saying, well, I can't have a blue nightcrawler against a blue sea. So I'm going to make the sea green. But then we have yeah. a green villain, and so it gets very muddied on the coloring. <laughs> and they were doing the best they could, but it uh, ends up with a lot of muddiness in it. On Lobdell's writing, he also set a challenge for himself because we basically have two characters talking in this. You have Nightcrawler, who then has to narrate everything with his thoughts, yeah. and the son of Krakoa, who is speaking for the native woman which is very problematic in and of itself. And so what we end up with is a lot of narration being cast as either dialogue or thought bubbles. Yeah, and like that's like a little bit of becoming like increasing like like an old-fashioned style too, which maybe kind of works for this kind of throwback of a story. Around that transition point where they start trying to get rid of the thought bubbles. I would say this is overly narrated. Uh, It's a lot of words on the pages that probably don't need to be there. And it's Mm -hmm. a certain amount of not trusting the artist to be able to get the information across. largely fine in this too, by the way, as opposed to some of our other films. Oh, the the art's great. I actually love the cover, yeah. which we didn't talk about at all. I mean, it's like, it's not a sexy Nightcrawler image, but I mean, I think it's like a very attractive, appealing, like eye-catching image. I actually like the cover quite a bit. Yeah. And then uh, lastly, with the whole idea of Vega Superior and the Vega Men that they have, or Vega Men, however you're supposed to yeah. pronounce it here. Um, I think one of the other reasons why this issue piqued my interest when I first wrote about it was this was around the time of let's call it the second wave environmentalism of Captain Planet and Gore using that as the vice presidential platform. And so I was intrigued by those ideas and wanted to see how they were expressed here, which are in terms of environmentalism is not great as it says, let's kill the vegetation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. And the idea that it's powerful is just like made fun of throughout the comic, which, you know, is an interesting sort of intertext with the current era to the extent that that's sort of, the reverse of what's happening there but i mean yeah i mean other intertext for it you know would obviously be something like swamp thing or something too right i mean the the more interesting things that are being done with kind of that idea in that space yeah did we want to talk just touch briefly on the megan scene because i mean i think it's relevant just because we have a return here to serialization that we hadn't had because we've just been having these fill-in issues that didn't sort of touch on other issues and we talked about how this could be situated anywhere and yet we do have an explicit callback to the previous issue so like he's yeah he's trying to restore serialization like a little bit i mean did this scene do anything interesting for us 
Oh well, yeah, I'll let you take that. I'll let you take that one, Andrew. If you oh have no, no, I, I was implying I I had nothing other than <laughs> look, Megan's a seagull and having very Degrassi Junior High style thoughts about yeah. removing herself. I liked seeing her kind of do this monstrous thing, you know, on her own, having yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's like a little real basic thing to say about this scene, but we just haven't seen that for a while with her, you know, her just sort of experiencing her body, you know, could we reminds me way, way, way back of like sword is drawn and her sort of existing yeah, in the, the dolphin, dolphin pod. We haven't had that like since then, basically. So I did find it interesting to call back to that a little bit. I do like that here she's kind of mad at the seagulls. She yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wonder, it is weird that, like, the one to comfort her is Brian, but I guess it's actually important to show that, you know, he's not evil. Yeah. You know, like, there is a reason she sees something in him, I guess. And, you know, they have their moment here. It is nice that even though we're changing art, artists and writers constantly, you know, it's a... Labdell is not Claremont, but Labdell is writing a version of these characters that I at least recognize. Yeah. And that yeah. hasn't been true in the last couple of weeks of our show where, you know, where I've made jokes about the fact for the last few episodes of who are these people? You know, like last issue, Kurt forgot he had powers for hours, hours. And now, you know, so that's not the case here. So, I mean, I, I like that it's at least acknowledged that there's an ongoing story. It's hard to establish a status quo when I don't know when the next, I mean, as a writer, if I don't know when the next time I'm going to touch these characters are, I don't know why, you know, everything needs to spin its wills for for issue. So yeah, I mean, the one little thing I'll say also that I did like about it is just that it does build on them trying to repair the Brian Megan relationship a little bit. Like, I mean, it reminds me of some of the stuff we talked about with the pub issue, you know, where we saw sort of a more empathetic side of him. I think it's an important scene to just sort of touch base with that's what we're doing with Megan and Brian. And even though it's just a page, at least we get that acknowledged, right? I mean, it's more than Rachel or yeah. obviously Kitty <laughs> get in this book. I know. <laughs> so the last thing we're going to do is just to touch base with the Sword Strokes letters page. And we haven't had one for ages. I like, we usually do it as a feature, but we just have had one in like five six issues so we're finally returning to it here there must have just been a stockpile of letters uh we got a few good ones but the one i'm gonna spotlight is probably one that will <laughs> hit hit a certain way with our listeners so this letter is from derek jansen of worcester what is ma maryland uh ma is massachusetts massachusetts uh Oh, I I forget that you guys took, like like it's it's odd and uh, you know we have international listeners but like I imagine for the rest of the world that is not the United States and Canada the United States and Canada must be the same place <laughs> but, but 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 like you know two different countries I'm the only I mean John you're here this week but I'm the only regular that's actually American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew and Anna are Canadian. It's a different country. So yeah, but it's a it's M M A is Massachusetts, M D is Maryland. You guys just have so many states. We have so many we have fewer. Fit, yeah, we have we have way more states than most countries do. Yeah. I forget about a lot of them. But um anyway, so this letter is from Derek. Dear Sword Strokes, re Excalibur number twenty, which as what we're called was the Demon Druid issue. Okay, I'm glad guest writer Mike Higgins had fun with the latest issue. Thank you. Now if you could do us one small in consequential favor don't ever let mike higgins write for excalibur again <laughs> what does he what does he think it is after all a comic book that's a little fun that derek was having at the expense of michael higgins who we were very hard on in a previous episode that we've been pretty hard on in a couple of episodes but i don't understand the point that derek's making here though i mean he's making a joke but he says you know he's glad he had fun i i don't know what he's getting at here i felt <laughs> like he was being deep sarcasm and maybe it just doesn't come across in writing but like i didn't get the impression he was a big fan of michael higgins i got sort of the impression he's like it was real jokey and please don't have him back on this book that I actually take seriously. Sorry, Derek. Um, I mean... <laughs> Meaning lost to time. <laughs> I am going home. Lord Greystoke. I can go. Because I know now I'm not. Half of me is here of Greystoke. I am going back.
All right. Um, let's wrap up fully now. Other than John, to come back to you, we've already said a couple of things about the types of things you get up to. But if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what things of yours would you like to plug for our listeners? Plug your books, plug your essays, plug whatever you would like. Well, I edited the Adapting Superman volume with excellent contributions from Anna and Mav. And I will have a, I'm finishing up co-editing a volume on horror comics that, fingers crossed, will be published next year. Around the time that this episode is released, I will also be on uh, the protagonist podcast discussing Captain America. Now, can you guess why I would be discussing Captain America in October, the month of Halloween? I cannot, so tell me. Mav, any guesses? I don't know, maybe you dressed as Captain America for Halloween? No, we're discussing the storyline where Captain America became a werewolf. Oh my god, are you doing, you're doing Cap? Yes, we're doing Cap. Was I not, was I, oh my god. (laughs) I just was like, when I said that, I was like, oh my god, are you? We go there. I I adore Cap. (laughs) Is that going to be the focus of the episode? Yes, that's the storyline we discuss. That's awesome. Yes, so I highly recommend everyone go over to Pretty Nice Podcast uh, and enjoy our discussion on Cap Wolf. Yeah, send it to us in case it doesn't. The timing doesn't line up. Do send it to us anyway, and we will certainly tweet it out to our listeners, regardless. Okay, you're probably the most frequent guest on Protagonist, I would assume. I'm no. There are a couple who have been there more than me, but I'm up there as one of the frequent guests. I, of course, came on it one time, of course, to talk about Nightcrawler. <laughs> Anna, <laughs> guess we will. My brother would love to have you back. Uh, we just need to find the right topic. Yeah. No, no, I wasn't really like <laughs> pitching myself again. I was just like, of course, that would be like what I came on the podcast to talk about. Well, that's just, and we had lots of fun. Yeah, so that was just the the initial thing that brought you to mind of, oh, you want to talk about Nightcrawler? You should have Anna on. But yes, you, rec- you can recommend some ideas if you want to come back. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And thank you so much again, John, for joining us. Thank you. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 33, discussing Excalibur 32, Someone Will Die for This, featuring the return of Chris Claremont and the beginning of Girls' School from Heck. It's going to be interesting. We're going to be talking comics and girlhood with a guest who knows lots about both as Kitty Pride begins her tenure at St. Cyril's School for Young Ladies. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another rejuvenating conversation. Thank you, John, for joining us on this adventure. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Stopping. Stopping.